Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Anybody here ever gone through something difficult? Been in a situation that was less than desirable? What kind of perspective do you have or have, did you have on that time as you were going through it and now as you look back on it? It's probably easier to have the proper perspective looking back, but right in the middle of it, <laughs> what kind of worldview perspective do you carry on the challenging circumstances of your life? We're going through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and as he writes that letter, he's right in the middle of some challenging circumstances, less than desirable things are going on in his life. And he has a perspective on it. And he is writing to report on his perspective on the things going on in his life to his friends in Philippi. And he does that right at the start of his letter because they've had concerns about him. They've heard about these things that are going on in, him, in his life, that he's in prison for the cause of Jesus, and they are worried about him. They've expressed that by sending him a gift and a friend. And Paul knowing their concern, sensing their concern, right at the start of his letter, one of those first orders of business is to report and let them know what's going on and give, him, give them his perspective on it. What was going on in Paul's life is that he was in prison in Rome. He had long wanted to come to Rome to minister there. That's the center of world power, and he wanted to be there. And, and he had written to the Romans, it's like three years before this, saying, I'm hoping to visit you. I've never been there. I don't know you people, but I, I'm looking forward to coming. Well, God brought him there, but not under the circumstances that Paul, I think, envisioned when he wrote his letter to the Romans. He brought him there as a prisoner. And he had him sit in, um, he wasn't in the worst possible conditions for a prisoner. He was given this consideration that he was allowed to rent his own private rooms in the city, not have to live with the riffraff in the normal prison camp. But, but he had to sit there and wasn't allowed to leave the house. He was under house arrest for two years. Um, and probably the most inconvenient thing about this and the most uh, non-pleasurable, frustrating aspect of this situation for him is that he had to be chained at all times to a guard, possibly two guards. When it refers in the text that we're about to read, when it's translated, my imprisonment this, my imprisonment that, the real Greek is my chains this and my chains that, which is an indication that Paul at all times, 24-7, for two years, is chained to a man that he doesn't know. And a man probably very unlike him, a soldier. And as soldiers go, we know, if you've never known a soldier, they tend to be kind of rough men, Foul-mouthed, is it fair to say? Yeah, probably not like the Apostle Paul. So probably not like nice. <laughs> not nice to be around. Probably maybe bossy. Um, and Paul doesn't have privacy. He doesn't have control of his life. He doesn't have free reign of his gifts. His heart is to minister. And now he is stuck at home, only able to minister to these guys chained to him or anybody who voluntarily comes to visit for two years. And the whole question of his life and future is up in the air. He's awaiting trial for charges that could bring an end to his life. He doesn't know. Nobody knows. That's the situation going on in Paul's life. And he writes to tell his friends his perspective. And it's a very positive perspective, which is quite amazing and something for us to learn from today. Let's look at this text together. We're in the first chapter of Philippians, starting in verse 12. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. 
Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. So the text kind of starts off with a sense of urgency. Now, I want you to know, brethren, and it would be natural. It was the Paul's friends in Philippi were concerned about him, and it's natural for Paul to immediately try to alleviate their concerns. And the way he does that is by saying, far from disaster, which you might have heard, uh, reports of my demise are greatly exaggerated. But more than that, God is actually using these circumstances to greatly advance his cause and the gospel, which is what I've been appointed to preach. Well, here I am stuck at home, not able to preach it like I would like to, like I normally would. And yet God is using that very circumstance to greatly progress the gospel in the world. So he immediately wants them to know, first of all, that his imprisonment is a positive thing. It's not negative. It's not the end of the world. The sky is not falling. This is a good thing, a positive thing. God is in this for good. Verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Because of my circumstances, many more people are hearing about Jesus than otherwise would. Which is a pretty amazing thing. What does this tell us about Paul? That right away, just right off the bat, that this is his perspective. Here's a godly and a gifted man. God's chosen instrument, the man appointed to preach to the Gentiles and testify before kings. And here he is, locked away from the world and from the free exercise of his gifts and from the ministry and calling that God has given him, right there in the, mid, in the capital city of the world, place he's longed to be. And is he spending his days of captivity frustrated, wallowing in self-pity? You would be, I would be, the sky, our sky would be falling, but Paul is not doing that. Does he think that, the, that God is in any way hindered or deterred or rendered impotent by his captivity in this situation? Is the future of the church in jeopardy? Is the mission, all the, all the wheels coming off the mission of Jesus Christ? That's what we would think. That's probably what the Philippians back home are thinking or worried was possibly happening. But Paul does not see it this way at all. What does he see? He looks through his eyes of faith upon this situation and he sees advantage. And it's an amazing thing. His perspective is really quite amazing. He sees that God is up to great things. How do you view your circumstances? How do you view your circumstances? Do you believe that God has ordained them for good? Is he in them, actively working to accomplish good things? Is that the, the kind of, is that the kind of faith and un, assumption that you carry around day to day as you go through the discomforts and the difficult things of life? God is up to something good. It's my job to see it and recognize it. Well, Paul clearly comes into this situation with that assumption. That's what he carries around. And he sees God doing great things, and he's eager to report about them. So here he goes on now in the next verses to detail some specific ways he saw the gospel advancing through his imprisonment. And the first thing that he sees and reports on is this, that he sees his influence on his own guards having a tremendous impact in the spread of the gospel in among places it could possibly never have gone any other way. Verse 13, he says, My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. 
This Praetorian Guard is the Imperial Guard of Rome. This is like the Caesars, the Emperor's personal troops, elite troops. This is like our secret service, maybe. That's a, a good analogy for these men. Um, these members of this troop, this Praetorian Guard, about 10,000 men, mostly there in the capital. They, uh, members of them are chained at all time to Paul. They are his guards. What are they chained to? A prisoner like they have never encountered in their life. A man like they've never met. You know, prisoners, they're probably used to kind of the off-scourings of the world and probably have a pretty cynical view of things and of human nature. Well, they just came into contact with some totally other creature, the Apostle Paul. A gentle, kind Loving man, a tolerant sufferer, with zeal to, to teach and to persuade and to convince all people. And people are showing up at the house to hear him speak about this God Jesus that they've never heard of, but they're coming to know through, as they listen to Paul, they can't not listen to Paul, there they are. And, and he it's becoming more and more compelling and interesting. What's going on? Who is this man? What is, what is this message all about? And probably they have the opportunity. I'm sure Paul, uh, maybe they have questions. Paul's patient after hours to, to, to debrief with them, tell them all about it, rehearse his own story, share his personal testimony of how God d- delivered him from his sins, called him into service. They come to be aware that Paul is here for Jesus Christ. That's why he's here. He's clearly not a criminal. If, if there was any, I mean, they have two years to really de- detect if there's some huge discrepancy between Paul's message and the public appeal of everything and who he is. They're with him in a way, probably more intimately than we are even in our marriages. Chained to one another. But you know, husbands and wives, how you can't really hide who you are very long from your spouse. These men get to know Paul. And they can tell, obviously, there's something very different about him than they've ever encountered or met before. And they start to tell other people about it. You wouldn't believe what's going on in that house down the street. (laughs) Who that man is. The things he says. The incisiveness of his words the piercingness of it, his love. He is great to be with. He, he is, I just, I can't get him out of my mind. And so they start talking and talking. And before long, all of the guard knows about him. I can even imagine men are finding this so interesting that they're on other shifts and other assignments, they're volunteering maybe to say, I'd like a turn with Paul. That sounds interesting. I'd like to see what this guy's all about. And more and more of them are coming into contact with Paul, and Paul is not wasting the opportunity to minister to them as men and treating them as souls in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, setting free from their sins. He loves them. We, you and I, I can imagine myself just being totally annoyed and resentful of the whole thing. Paul sees it as an opportunity, a tremendous opportunity. And he says, the whole Praetorian guard comes to know that I'm here for the cause of Christ. And through them, presumably, everyone else. I think that what this means is that everybody that's in the capital, there on imperial business, engaging in anything important in the city, is coming in contact with these guards and they're hearing about this man, Paul, and what he teaches and why he's here and who he is and what his character is. That's... That's something that God was up to in a powerful way to advance his purposes through Paul's trials. The other group that Paul says was impacted in this time powerfully through his sufferings was the church itself. In verse 14 he says that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Wouldn't that be nice? They're suddenly to get a shot in the arm of far more courage. I could use that. 
Nobody's like, everyone's just like, (laughs) don't you feel your fear? Don't you feel the discrepancy between what you carry around and purport to believe in for yourself and how everyone's living and the consequences of their life and their unbelief? And don't you wish, don't you wish that you could get a shot for that (laughs) to infuse you suddenly with zeal and courage and boldness? Paul's circumstances were that shot for the church. It's amazing. God worked through his sufferings and his example and his um, experiences in such a way as to bless the church at that time with far more courage and boldness to speak the word without fear. That was the effect, a powerful effect of Paul's circumstances. It was a difficult time to minister and to believe what these people believed and to proclaim what they were signed to proclaim. This is Rome under Nero and only a few very short years, maybe two or three, before Nero's rage against Christianity is irritated and unleashed. It's a notorious persecution. Brutal. And so surely they're all feeling the pressure mounting. The church is growing. It's now on the radar. It's now a target. Everyone probably feels the growing tensions between the pantheon of gods and the Roman system of idolatry and the claims of Jesus Christ and the growing church coming into conflict. What do we do in the, what are we doing in the similar situation today as the world is encroaching um, and is becoming more aggressive and we feel the competing claims, two very different belief systems and worldviews. The temptation is to go quiet, to go silent. And we and I succumb to that temptation. This had the opposite effect. Here suddenly Paul comes in, comes into town, and he is not able to do what he would normally do, but his example and his person, and his whatever, God uses by the way he suffers, and the things that they observe happening. You know, we normally assume that the worst outcome is what's going to happen. If I open my mouth to talk to this person about the Lord, it's going to go really bad, awfully bad. That's the fear that keeps our mouths closed. Well, it wasn't going awfully bad for Paul. <laughs> In fact, Paul was, God, they could see God using these circumstances to advance his cause and to, to actually grow faith in the city. And this all God used to infuse the church with faith. Courage is contagious. Paul's courage was contagious. His spirit was contagious. We need men and women here who will take the lead in courage for the rest of us. Who, which one of us or which ones of us are going to start sticking our neck out in faith so that the others can have more faith ourselves? Courage is contagious in Paul's own example of faithful suffering, suffering for the Lord. Cheerfulness in that was inspiring to others. The courage is contagious. Paul's Faithful example inspired boldness and fearlessness for Jesus, but not always for the right reasons, which is one of the most interesting things about this passage, is that God could, Paul could say, God uses me, is using me to, to create this in the church, that people are far more confident and bold in their public proclamation of the gospel than they were before but not all for good reasons or good motives. And Paul's perspective on that, too, is pretty amazing and instructive for us. Paul sees the gospel advancing despite some brothers' bad motives for preaching it. It says in verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So almost everybody in the church was stirred up in a new way, fresh boldness, zeal, but not everybody from the same motives. Some were motivated by love. Maybe most were motivated by love. Love for God, love for Paul. He specifically says that they, were, that they knew that I was appointed for the defense of the gospel, and that's connected to their love, the love that he is drawing attention to and their, their motives. Love is the great motive. If we don't have love, no matter what we do, is useless. Paul writes about this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13. If I, well, let me read it to you just a little bit. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I go around boldly declaring in the, the best possible heavenly language, If I speak with those tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Clearly, it can profit other people, or Paul can't say what he's going to say. But if we don't have love, brothers and sisters, we don't have anything for ourselves. We have no reward, no commendation from the Lord. Love is the irreducible minimum of all obedience and all godliness, all godly action or service. And some of these people were motivated by love and love for Paul himself. Here's this great man come to town, and they don't begrudge him his gifts and his influence. In fact, they, they're thankful that he's here and excited that he's here, and they love him. And they see that he's been benched. <laughs> God's put him on the bench, and he's not able to get out there and do his normal thing, the thing we would normally be excited for him to do. He can't come to the church. He can't get to the marketplace. He can't get around and do his thing. You know what, guys? Let's go out there and do it for him. Let's get busy. Let's get our rear in gear. Because we are inspired by this man. We feel, you know, compelled by his presence. Excited by what we see God doing through him and who he is. To get out there and serve the Lord. That's a good motivation. A motivation of true love. Love for the Apostle Paul, love for God. Spurgeon says this, you've sometimes seen a widely spreading oak tree cut down and you have missed its grateful shadow. Yet afterwards you have discovered that many little trees which would have, would have been dwarfed beneath its shade have grown more rapidly in its absence. You guys seen this? You know this in clearing the woods? Little trees can't get enough sunlight, so they can't grow up. They're crowded out. You take out some of the big trees, those little trees go, woo. And that's what uh, was happening here. Sometimes that's the way it works in the church and in ministry. So God takes one of the big trees out of the equation, and little trees spring up. That's a credit to Paul. And it shows, it's a window into his motives. To notice that he doesn't begrudge these little trees their, their day in the sun. He is celebrating that God is using him being benched to, to create an opportunity and to spur others on to action for the Lord and service, achievements for God. Some, he says, were motivated, though, out of envy and strife. They become bold and more active to accomplish things for God from bad motives, envious motives, striving. How does that work? What does that look like? Well, it looks very similar to the motivation of the other men. There's Paul, 
He's, spurred, he's been used of God in this circumstance to spur people on to boldness and action. Some people, out of love for him and for what he represents, are motivated to action from good motives. Some people see what he is, and they feel threatened by Paul. They, they feel begrudging towards him and his influence. Who does he think he is? We were here. He, he wasn't responsible for our church. Why is he here? And why are people like, why are people packing out his little apartment every day to hear him speak? We're the pastors of this town. Who does he think he is? Now, I'm sure they're not saying this, but they feel it in their heart, and Paul discerns it in their motives, their feelings towards him. They feel, men in town feel threatened by Paul, by his influence. They're jealous for the things that they see Paul having, his gifts, his, his personality, his following. And they get their rear in gear so as not to be left behind. So as not to have Paul be that big tree. We'll, sh- we'll show who the big tree is in town. We're going to spread our branches more actively and more aggressively. And Paul says they did this not only from bad intentions, bad motives, uh, evil ambition, but also to cause him distress. How would that work? How would it cause Paul distress? That these men would be out there going for it for the Lord out of a bad heart. Well, it just wouldn't be pleasant, would it? To know this and to observe it. But how would it, how would it work to cause Paul distress? I think, you know, you know the this, this statement, the, the phrase, the expression, a thief thinks everybody steals? These jealous men want to make Paul jealous, assuming that they're made of the, he's made of the same stuff as them. So their activity is meant to irritate Paul, make him wish he could be out of jail, make him impatient with his circumstances. If you've been a Christian very long, if you've been in the church serving the Lord alongside one another for very many days or minutes, and you haven't seen in yourself those kinds of feelings towards other people and resentments about other people's gifts and abilities and standing and influence. I don't think you're alive. I certainly don't know how to relate to you. This has been a huge struggle in my life. To fight against envy. Envy is a very horrible sin, but it's a very common sin. But it is the sworn enemy of love. You can't love and envy at the same time. Love is a desire to seek others' good. That's agape love from God. Envy is a desire to get things for yourself. And apparently, the troubling thing here, one of the troubling things, is that it's entirely possible to look like you are seeking other people's good for yourself. You can do that outwardly from a heart that desires your own good and looking to get something for yourself out of it. One of the weightiest and most unnerving questions that I have ever had put to me in my life was this. From our Evangel Presbytery BCO liturgy for the ordination and installation of a minister. There's a list of questions, vows that I took the day of my ordination and installation. I've been asked it twice, come to think of it. One of those questions is the really scary one to me. The other one's like, do you believe in the Bible? Do you see yourself a sinner? And these kinds of things. Well, this one is really unnerving and intimidating. Have you been induced as far as you know your heart to seek the office of the holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son? That is an intimidating question. I put it to you, because it's not just for ministers. It's especially for ministers. 
but it's for all of us who have signed up for service for the Lord, which is the definition of a Christian. God has called us, and here we are, his servants. So I put it to you. Have you been induced, as far as you know your own heart, to seek the service of the Lord, work in his house and vineyard and field from love to God and a sincere desire to promote his glory and the gospel of his Son? Motives matter. Motives matter. We, just because we got up this morning a Christian, does not mean that our motives are as pure as the wind-driven snow. We should carry around a certain suspicion about our motives. I don't know, that's a, you have to learn that lesson from this text. You don't learn another one. It's entirely possible to look and act a Christian from entirely unchristian motives. That means it's possible for you and me to do that. And the answer is this. We test ourselves. We examine our ways. We return to the Lord. We repent of what we see that's evil and wrong and wicked when we see it. Purge ourselves through repentance. Purify our hearts before God on a regular daily basis. Here's a good prayer for those of us like me who struggle with jealousy and envy. It's by A.W. Tozer. It's a prayer clearly for ministers, but I think you can translate it pretty easily to your situation. Dear Lord, I refuse henceforth to compete with any of your servants. They have congregations larger than mine. So be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts. Very well. That's not in their power, nor in mine. I am humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use your glory for your glory such modest gifts as I possess. I will not compare myself with any man, nor try to build up my self-esteem by noting where I may excel other people in your work. I herewith make a blanket disavowal of all intrinsic worth. I am but an unprofitable servant. I gladly go to the foot of the cross and own myself the least of your people. This is my favorite part. If I err in my self-judgment and actually underestimate myself, I do not want to know it. I purpose to pray for others and to rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is my own if it is your own, for what is yours is mine. And while one plants and another waters, it is you alone that gives the increase. Do you want peace in your life? Do you want contentment and joy and satisfaction in your labors? Do you want to be free to love and serve alongside people without jealousy and envy and strife and a, dom and a desire to dominate and control? You know, these things are ever-present and awful joy destroyers in our life. If you want those things, ask God for a new heart, a pure heart, a loving heart, a heart like Tozer prays for, and you will have it. God will give it to you. And it's clearly Paul's heart. It's just this whole passage is just, it's actually a very, been a very challenging passage for me to come up against with my own sin, proclivities, temptations, and to see Paul so free to rejoice in God's goodness, to see it when he sees it, to draw attention to it from a pure heart, and especially when that comes in the form of other people's successes but also when it comes 
at this point, which is maybe one of the most remarkable things about this passage, that he can rejoice in those things and not not be troubled by the fact that some people are garnering attention for themselves at this time in the church, in the name of Jesus Christ, intentionally at his expense. That's an amazing thing. That is like so far beyond where I normally live in the freedom of Christ and the joy of the Lord. But man, is it where I want to be? Is that where you want to live? Able to really glorify God and see what he's up to and rejoice in it in the midst of great difficulty and annoyance and uncertainty in your life. And and in the person of other people who are not in that circumstance and are being blessed of God and used of God powerfully. You willing to be sidelined and watch other people advance in your place and in your stead? Paul was. What's the key? What gives? Where does he come up with this? How is it produced in his heart? His response to all this is a surprising, overriding, positive joy. Here's what he says. What then? What of it? What what do we make of all these things that I've just said? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed And in this I rejoice. That's a pretty surprising takeaway. Especially if you think to other moments in Paul's writings in his life where he was unsparing of people who he deemed false. If you think of Galatians, powerful, bold, unflinching denouncements of people who he feels are a threat. And are false. Other writings of his went to Timothy and Titus also. He's unsparing at other times. How, how is he able to be magnanimous, broad-shouldered, and patient with these men? Well, there's a key difference. If we want to know how he can get away with this and not be at odds with himself and his own principles, here's how. These men are different from those men. Those men, whenever Paul comes up against men who are teaching another gospel, leading people astray by proclaiming a different truth, something that competes with simple faith in Jesus Christ, in those cases, he's unsparing. He has to be. The souls are at stake. But when it comes to men who are teaching the truth, as these men appear to be doing, yet doing it from a false heart, false motives. Paul can be patient with that. And I got to tell you, I take a little, I may be perverse, just perverse enough, but I actually take some comfort in that. (laughs) That when I look at my own heart and the admixture of good and bad motives that I'm constantly wrestling about or with, barely keeping my foot on the neck of in my life, if if I see Paul being Willing to be patient with a man like that? Hey, God can be patient with and use me. I hope so. Paul is able to distinguish between the words that people are saying and the impact of those words on hearts and minds, whether they're true, and the motives that they're spoken with. When the words themselves are untrue, Paul's unsparing. When the heart is untrue, Paul can be patient. In fact, for the good of the sheep, he probably must be patient. Because these men are shepherds of people and souls. And for Paul to denounce them is to, when they're speaking the truth, just because he discerns in them a bad motive, and he's no dummy, He's inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes these words. 
He needs to be patient for their good because they, these sheep trust their shepherds. And he must be patient with them. But how on earth does he rejoice nonetheless? It's one thing to be patient with these men. How does he get to the point where he rejoices in it? And how does Paul also come to rejoice in all of these difficult circumstances and have the eyes to see the good in them? Here's the answer. Here's, I think, Paul's big secret. Okay? It's not about him. <laughs> it's not about him. It is wonderfully, refreshingly, totally not about him. Paul has surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. It's dead and gone. Who he was and all his early ambitions for notoriety and advancement, he has, they are buried in the tomb. He, is, he belongs to Jesus Christ. He is his, his man. He has surrendered his entire life to Jesus and lives for him. And this allows Paul's emotions and feelings the wonderful freedom of not being enslaved to his circumstances. He doesn't have to try to desperately wring out of the drudgery and disappointments of life something satisfying for himself, only to be deflated and displeased. Because his life is not about him, it's about Jesus. He didn't have to feel his own significance threatened anytime somebody else is raised up around him and advanced because it's not about him. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his advancement. That's what matters. He didn't even have to be troubled by the fact that these men were advancing at his expense intentionally. Something that would normally completely burn in us. Paul's able to let that go and rejoice because it's about Jesus Christ and his glory and his advancement and the advancement of his kingdom. Paul is not the hero of his story. He is not the center of his universe. He's gone through the spiritual version of the Galilean scientific revolution. He's had a massive, major, cosmological perspective change. You remember that in history? When we used to think that the world was the center of the universe, only to come to find it's only a little thing, a little spot, a little speck off in the corner somewhere? Massive perspective changer for the world. Paul's gone through that on a spiritual level in coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes everything. And it results in great freedom for him. <laughs> because it's thankfully not about him. <laughs> when, you, when you put yourself and not Jesus at the center of the story, at the center of the universe, when you put yourself there and not Jesus and insist that everything orbit around you and serve you. You're not only sinning greatly, you are going to be profoundly disappointed with life because you don't belong there. That spot is not made for you. That's not where you belong. This is not your story. Story of the world, the unfolding story of history, is the story of Jesus Christ being told. You're just a little part, a little speck in his great tale. And that tale is a tale of increasing, unfolding display of majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in incredibly interesting and intricate ways, far beyond our ability to comprehend. Do you want to be satisfied in life? 
you want to really suck the marrow out of every day. You want to find a truly stable and satisfying joy that can see you through circumstances like Paul's, circumstances like yours. You want to be free from worry, a need to control, free from envy and the oppressive fear of lost significance. Find your life in Christ. That is significant. He is significant. And what he is up to in this world in glorifying himself is majestic and satisfying and glorious and wonderful and enough to keep you what? Deeply enriched, satisfied all your days and every day in whatever circumstances you're in. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He also said that I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is to be found in Jesus Christ. And it won't be found anywhere else. You can claw for it. You can strive for it. You can control for it. You can demand it. And it will let you down. It will, it will upset you. It will deflate you. It will leave you empty. Come and find your life in Jesus Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his glory, which is clearly what the Apostle Paul did. All of his bones. All, of his, all that he had. All of his heart. And you will find the life that you seek, the significance and the meaning and the purpose that you seek, and the freedom to enjoy it. What might the Lord be up to in your circumstances? How does he intend to glorify himself in the disappointments and the struggles and the difficulties of your life. That is what he is doing and is all about. And he is about drawing men to take note of it in amazed wonder. Paul lived for that. He had eyes to see it. He testified about it to men. In his letter to the Philippians. What is he doing in your circumstances? What is your perspective on all these things? If you sincerely, prayerfully ask those very questions of the Lord, you will find answers that will lead you every day into the goodness and the joy of the Lord Jesus. He's doing powerful things. What will you see? You will see that this, the Lord Jesus, in his power and in his providence, is drawing beauty out of ashes. He is restoring years that locusts have eaten. He is disguising tremendous victories in the clothing of defeat. To show himself triumphant and powerful in surprising ways. He delights to do this. This is what Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator, is worth reading. It's what Matthew Henry calls the strange chemistry of God's providence. And it's what Lloyd-Jones, another good preacher, says. He calls divine alchemy. And the early Christian church had a way of summarizing this way of dealing of God's, the way God operates. This, this mystery, mystery of his prom, providence, this alchemy of how he, he, out of the midst of these terrible circumstances, achieves his greatest triumphs. Think of Jesus on the cross. The darkest moment, seemingly, from, from all of 
all of Christ's for all of Christ's followers. And what is God doing? He's triumphing over all the forces of darkness in the most powerful of ways. This is what God delights to do. And Paul, as his servant, delights to see it. And he wants us, you and me, to watch him do it in our lives and to join him in doing it and, have, and living through it and participating in it and delighting in him for it, to his praise and his glory. The fruit will be deeply satisfying. I was going to say that the early church had a way. You know, the early church struggled under persecution for many years, decades, centuries. Horrible things. Lots of people dead, killed for Jesus Christ in, in brutal ways. And they came to say this. They observed the way God dealt and worked through their suffering and their sacrifice. This, and they, they summarized it this way. That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Nero can try to stamp out the fire of God's spirit. What happens is it spreads sparks everywhere. And that's what Paul saw happening in his imprisonment in this time. And may we have eyes to see what God is up to in our lives and a willingness to praise him for it and to join in for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would inspire us by the example of Paul to rejoice in our sufferings and to look to see what you're up to in them. To delight in that. To delight to tell other people about what we see you doing in the midst of our suffering and our trials. And we pray that you would show yourself powerful to accomplish great things. And Lord, would you give us faith to be used of you? And would you give us boldness from pure hearts to witness for your glory and to not be afraid? I pray that you'd make our hearts true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.